Welcome to Making the Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today is April 16th, which does not seem like a date that would fill a person with dread and horror, but it fills me with dread and horror. Because my date, the date of my exam, the thing that I've been studying for all these months, is on May 16th. So that means that today I have exactly a month left. Exactly a month left of reading and thinking and writing and making podcasts and twirling my hair and not seeing my friends. And I am anxious. I'm not anxious for like any particular reason. I I think I'm going to do okay. I'm not even anxious because I don't think I've read enough books. I, I think I'm doing actually pretty fine. I'm more anxious just because this massive thing is now closer to real than it's ever been. It feels like now has to be the final stretch. Now I have to never have a day where I kind of just get everything half done. Now I have to get my reading done really quickly and move on to this kind of broader activity in which I try to make big, gigantic narratives about all the stuff that I read. Now I can't have a bad day. Of course, that's not true. It's still real life. I'm still going to have bad days. I'm still going to, you know, mess up. But that's how it feels, having a, a month left. So as I've been preparing, I don't just read books. I also kind of mentally prepare myself by imagining myself in the room in which the orals exam will happen. And I imagine the kinds of big, gigantic questions that my advisors will ask me. And I try to imagine the kinds of questions that would stump me, the really, really big ones, the ones with deceptively easy answers that you have to be really careful about. And today, I thought of a really hard one, and I want to just talk my way through it in this episode. And that hard one is, why do I begin my story when I begin it? The stuff that I'm reading uh, extends from about 1688 to 1916. I can defend the 1916 part pretty well. I've done it before in a podcast. My story is about the rise of particular kinds of organizations that, through particular new kinds of technology, make the world a bigger place. And this story has its apotheosis in the rise of 19th century globalization. And the First World War is a very clear moment in which this 19th century globalization ends. But then why begin this story in 1688? What happens then? What does it matter? 1688 is a really conventional date to start the study of modern British history. In 1688, we have what is called the Glorious Revolution. And to explain what it is, I'll just give you a little bit of background about what happened in the 17th century. The 17th century in British history was a story of political bloodshed, in which questions about the authority of king and parliament and religion were all you know, struggled with by a bunch of different actors, and they came to a head in not only riots and protests, but massive civil wars that led to a lot of bloodshed. 
1688 is the culmination of this story, the end of it, the moment when these big questions about politics and religion and representation are, if not settled, then at least gotten to a point at which people are no longer deciding to kill each other over them. So let's start our story in the 40s and the 50s. In the 40s and the 50s, you have a dispute between an increasingly grumpy parliament and an increasingly Catholic king. The king is a guy named King Charles I. These are generally called the Civil Wars or the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. And what happens is that you get a bunch of different fighting forces, most famously the forces of parliament against the forces of the king. The king lost and in 1649 got his head chopped off and for about a decade, the nation was led by a commoner named Oliver Cromwell in a kind of Puritan military dictatorship that not a lot of people liked. When Cromwell died, nobody was really prepared to take on the role that he had of getting all of the different stakeholders in Parliament and society and the military happy, and the regime collapsed really ignominiously, and uh, King Charles I's son, King Charles II, was welcomed over from France. You might know about this period, the Restoration period, if you were an English major, and uh, you learned to appreciate the dirty, dirty theater uh, of Restoration comedy. Charles II was mostly interested in drinking and, you know, having sex with mistresses, uh, but he was still a king who kind of shaped his country. He uh, was a secret Catholic, and he accepted a secret bribe from the French, the deal being that he would wage war against the Dutch, who were the French's enemies, secretly convert to Catholicism, and start to roll back the uh, restrictions that had been placed on Catholic worship in Britain. Charles II died without a heir. Uh, he had a lot of bastards, he had a lot of children that he had out of wedlock, but he did not have a legal heir, and the throne went to his brother, James II, in 1685. James II was a little bit of a ham-fisted monarch, and he uh, just made everybody pissed off at him increasingly throughout his reign. One of his big moves is that he tried to make a coalition of dissenters. Uh, dissenters are Protestants who are not uh, within the accepted Anglican Church, and Catholics. Uh, and this uh, coalition was meant to be a political bulwark that would allow James II to roll back a lot of the disamenities that had been placed on Catholic and dissenter worship. The idea being, well, look, make things easier for Catholics. He also did stuff like set up a standing army. Um, he had uh, public Catholic masses at which he attended. And people were freaked out about him. People did not want a return to the bloodshed of Charles I, and neither did people want there to be a rollback of the Anglican Church. Most people considered themselves Protestant in Wales, Scotland, and England. Ireland, of course, was a different story. And people were worried that the king, who was, you know, by all intents and purposes, the head of the Anglican Church, was not himself an Anglican. But people weren't too freaked out because James II's child, Mary, was a full 
fledged Protestant. She was actually married to William III of the Netherlands, the Stadtholder of the Netherlands, who was about the most Protestant Protestant you possibly could ever meet. If uh, people in Britain were worried about James II allying with France, uh, William III spent his entire life being the thorn in the side of the French monarch Louis XIV. Everything Louis XIV did, every great plan that he had, William III was there trying to make sure that it would go wrong. However, things really changed in 1688, because in 1688, James II's wife gave birth to a male child, and this changed the succession. The male child would then be the next monarch, not the Protestant Mary. And people were freaked out. Now the panic started. Now people were really worried. There were conspiracies or rumors or, uh, you know, truthful facts spread around that the child was not even the child of James II, that in fact it had been smuggled into the birthing chamber in a warming pan. Um, if you think that political conspiracies started in, uh, you know, uh, 1960, you're wrong. Uh, these Whigs and Tories of the 17th and 18th century were conspiracy mad. And James II didn't seem to be backing down. He seemed to be doubling down on trying to remake the British state more along the lines of its absolutist cousins on the continent of Europe. And a group of Tories and Whigs, a group of political notables, sent over a secret communication to William III saying, look, we're worried about stuff over here. If you came over with an army, we wouldn't be too sad. And in 1688, on November 5th, blown by what is known as the Protestant wind, William III landed in England with an army. But what happened next is not what you might expect. What you might expect is that William III would land and there would be a bunch of battles and there would be a story of set-piece battles and riots and we might have a scene of James II standing on top of a hill wearing armor, telling people to charge. We might have scenes of rioting in cities where supporters of James II and supporters of William III started to clash, but we don't get any of that. This is not the Civil Wars Part Two. What happens instead is that James seems to have what we can only call as a mental breakdown. And despite a small number of battles and a lot of anti-Catholic riots, James II kind of does a mic drop and leaves. He throws the Great Seal into the River Thames, the Great Seal being this thing that, you know, has to be put on every bit of legislation out there. And he meanders over to the coast, uh, somebody finds him and takes him back to London where they go, no, no, we do not want James anymore. And so James goes back down to the coast and flees to France, leaving the throne empty. And now Parliament decides that James abandoned the crown. And after some wrangling between William and Mary and Parliament, they decide to crown William and Mary joint monarchs. This is not the end of the story. Uh, there's prolonged war in Scotland and Ireland where uh, the Williamite armies try to consolidate their power and it leads to a number of uh, massacres, uh, the most notable being the Glencoe Massacre in Scotland. 
Uh, and we can't really say that things are stable until at least the signing of the Treaty of Limerick in 1692. But we can think of 1688 as the new beginning of the British state. And so why is it useful? Why do people start the story of modern British history with 1688? One is that it is the end of the political stability of the 17th century. This is one of the big points of what's called the Whig history, the Whig interpretation of history, which says that 1688 created a new kind of resilient constitutional mixed monarchy. And the story from 1688 on into the present is a story of this mixed monarchy getting increasingly perfect. Why it is so great is that no power can overwhelm one another. King, parliament, nobles, and people are all finely balanced in this constitution. And so everybody is keeping tabs over everyone else. Uh, institutional economists like Douglas North will insist that this stops the state from preying on economic activity, allowing the economy to start to develop uh, full-fledged and full-throttle. And as you see the story of British history continuing over the 18th and 19th centuries, 1680 becomes a touchstone. It's where we get moments like the signing of the Bill of Rights. And it's this moment where political liberties are really enshrined in the soul of Britain, at least according to this old style Whig interpretation. What we can say for sure is that it's the end of civil war in Britain. There is no more civil war unless you count um, the stuff that happens in Ireland in the 19th and 20th centuries. After this point in time, conflict in England and Scotland and Wales takes place through politics, through people arguing, through publishing stuff in the public sphere, through parliamentary maneuvers, through prime ministers and acts and stuff like that. It is no longer about war of person against person. And Britain does escape from the specter of revolution. Uh, it does not have a French Revolution in the 1790s, even though it's very afraid that it might, and it does not have a revolution in the 19th century, whereas every other pretty much European state in 1848 has a revolution, Britain does not. And if you look at the story backwards, it seems like Britain also does not have much threat from even the rightful claimants of the throne, the Jacobites, the people who support the Stuarts, James II and all of his progeny. In 1715 and 1745, there are invasions where a pretender to the throne comes, supported by troops from France, but uh, people don't, by and large, flock to them except in Scotland, and they are both put down. So we can see this as the beginning of some kind of political stability. 1688 also marks the beginning of a century and more of war. One of the things that William does is William reorients the foreign policy of Britain away from being a little bit on the sidelines of things, a little bit on the side of France, a little bit hands-off, to being deeply involved in European and international politics and oriented against France. Almost immediately following William III's arrival in Britain, there starts an eight years war against France. And this is not the end of war with France. If you just look at a timeline of British history, you will see an unimaginable list of wars that are really hard to keep straight. 
Uh, after the Franco-British uh, War, uh, you have the War of Spanish Succession, the War of Austrian Succession, the War of Jenkins' Year, the Seven Years' War, the War of American Independence, the um, uh, uh, Napoleonic Wars, the Revolutionary Wars. The wars just keep on coming. If you chose a war year at random in British history from 1688 to 1815, chances are that that year Britain would be fighting France somewhere around the world. And this is important because the story of warfare is really the story of the 18th century. Britain comes out on top of France because it is able to create new forms of finance that let it keep troops in the field for longer without as much problems at home. The big thing here is the creation of the Bank of England in 1694, and the concomitant creation of a national debt, which we've discussed before, why a national debt is good. It also encourages Britain to become a major naval power, because if you're worried about France, you're worried about the English Channel. You're worried about France sending over a bunch of ships, uh, going across the highway of the ocean, landing somewhere, and invading and taking all your stuff. And so to stop that, Britain needs to always have a good navy and always be ready to stop any ships that might be coming over from France. It also pushes Britain away from Britain. The wars against France, as Britain succeeds in war after war after war, gain Britain an increasingly large set of territories outside of Europe. Uh, these are territories in North America. A lot of the Ohio Valley is settled in this time period because of battles between French and English uh, colonialists. This is also when you get a consolidation of British landed power in India. The big moment here is uh, at the Battle of Plessy when Britain trounces uh, French and Indian troops and gets control over Bengal and kind of shows itself to be the only European power in the Indian subcontinent. And war is also incredibly important for the development of the economy. People don't just see war as we see war as some kind of mistake. People at the time thought that war was able to do good things to the economy. People fought so that they could get trading rights, so that they could get access to particular kinds of raw materials, so that they could get uh, access to trading routes. And we should see this long war against France is also producing a lot of economic benefits just as kind of an after effect. One example of it is the development of the rolling and puddling method of creating iron using coke instead of wood. Uh, this is developed in the 1780s by Henry Court because people are worried that they're not going to be able to get the kind of high quality iron that they want from Sweden in the case of a war against France. And this iron is needed for a bunch of fittings in ships. So Henry Court, working with the Navy, makes this new method of iron production, which then, as a complete afterthought, allows people to use fossil energy for the production of iron. Another big theme that 1688 rolls up is the rise of toleration, religious toleration, in British history. Many things that the Anglican state stood for in the 17th century, the idea that it could impose religious uniformity over all of the people throughout the country, are kind of abandoned in 1688. I mean, there's the problem that the kings of 
of England and Scotland and Wales are not actually Anglicans for a really long time. Uh, William III is not an Anglican, of course, he's a Calvinist from the Netherlands. And the people who'd come over after him, the, the Hanoverians, are originally not Anglicans, they are Lutherans from Germany. So there's that, there's that embarrassing little thing that the head of Anglican church is not actually an Anglican. But also there is a taking off of the restrictions that were placed upon dissenters, upon Protestants who do not follow the Anglican lead, people who don't believe in the Book of Common Prayer, people who do not believe in the pastoral succession that the Anglicans set up. These people are increasingly treated with a live and let live kind of character. They're still not allowed to assume public office, but this is kind of turned a blind eye to. There's this thing called occasional conformity. As long as you take the sacrament in an Anglican church once a year, you kind of don't care. And in this respect, we can see the rise of toleration that 1688 brings in its wake as the start of a new orientation to problems of state and society. Whereas in the 17th century and earlier, people thought in terms of sin economics, the idea that bad things happened because God was angry about us, the idea that it was the job of the political entity to basically just make everybody religious and that was it. Instead, you turn to new understandings of the powers of state and society. Instead of trying to make everybody, you know, just believe in the same kind of God in the same kind of way, the state takes on new responsibilities, different responsibilities. Instead, people see the state as something that should help the economy develop, something that should help the nation develop, something that should make the bread baskets full, the orchards rich, the children plentiful, and the learning great. And I mean, there's much more that 1688 marks a change of. There's books written about this, not just books, but whole bookshelves that you could get filled with people disputing about what 1688 means for British history. But there's a problem. In my story, the big movers are not these political changes. They're not these religious changes. Instead, the big mover is this complicated co-evolution of new kinds of ways of organizing society that in turn let people make new kinds of methods of production and consumption that in turn allow people to make new kinds of organizations of society. The engine of it is the widening of the market, the widening of people's day-to-day -day experiences. And if you've been listening long enough, I don't need to go too in depth about this process. But the idea is this, people start to encounter one another in new kinds of ways when they get into large urban environments. You meet a lot of strangers. And to deal with these strangers, you need new ways of organizing your social and business life. These are found to actually not just help manage the problem of trusting strangers, but they let people do new kinds of things more efficiently. They let people make clubs and coffee houses that are devoted to the discussion of particular kinds of sometimes obscure discussions. These allow people to make new kinds of knowledge about things that change the ways that people produce and consume goods. 
at these coffee houses, people try new kinds of drugs and food and learn to get a taste of them. In these clubs, people discuss new ways of manufacturing stuff, which leads in the 1770s and 1780s to the development of the steam engine. And there's this feedback loop too, as you get the steam engine, then you in the rolling and puddling method, then you get railroads, which in further expands the reach of people's daily lives. And to the extent that you've been following along, you might agree or disagree to this large story. But where does this story begin? Starting my story as I do with 1688 suggests that what I'm doing is I'm telling a political history. When I'm not, I'm not telling a political history. I don't think that uh, the accession of any particular king really matters for the story that I'm telling. So why on earth 1688? One way I can answer this in a podcast that I couldn't answer in the exam is by shrugging my shoulders and saying, look, it's convenient. 1688 is when a lot of people start to write about the kinds of processes that I'm curious about. I might be able to trace particular processes like the rise of the coffee house to the 1650s, but 1688's a nice round number that lets me, you know, open up the curtains on the stage of British history when there aren't these distracting troubles about uh, James II and Catholics and Protestants and all that sort of stuff. And you know what? If I had free reign over everything, if I had infinite time, if I was designing a lecture course without the oversight of these five sometimes scary professors, I might start the story in the middle of the 17th century with uh, what is called the general crisis. In states all around the world, there is revolution. Some people argue that this is because of the Little Ice Age. This is a way that I can start my story from an environmental perspective. What we're really talking about is a slow buildup of political stability after an ecological crisis that is created by a reduction in solar energy. From this perspective, what matters is not that William III comes to the throne, but instead that you get a reduction in the crappiness of the ecological uh, situation of the 17th century. You get crops failing less. You get yields increasing. You get uh, summers that are warmer. And it's that that allows people to make these larger kinds of organizations, to have more complexity, to have ideas of greater kinds of state power, to have fewer riots, because what's a great thing to cause you to riot? Well, hunger and fear and failure of crops. That might be a better starting point. And yet there is a way that I can argue that 1688 is a good place to start the story of evolution of organizations and technology. Because one of the things that is pushing 1688, one of the reasons why uh, William III doesn't get a ton of people pissed off at him when he comes over with an army, is that the political nation had been educated to be really upset with what James II was doing. And it was educated through these new kinds of organizations. It was educated from people in London coffee houses arguing about what James II was doing. It was educated through news sheets and newspapers that published all of these political instances and gave it a particular kind of ideological spin. It was educated through these new kinds of informal social clubs that allowed people not only to pursue 
pursue new interests, but also to discuss new things. Because these organizations let people get together and imagine that it wasn't just them that they were talking about. It wasn't just their interests that they were talking about, but instead that they were talking about the nation as a whole. That when these seven or eight or 15 or 20 guys in a London coffeehouse got together, that they were not just 20 guys in a London coffeehouse, but they can imagine that they could speak and think of the nation. And that what they wanted was not just their individual self-interest, but instead the good of the nation. And furthermore, that they could get to the good of the nation, that they could think their ways to it, that they could think their ways out of their individual particularities. This is what is called the rise of the public sphere. And it might be that we could frame this whole thing in 1688 as the real triumph of the public sphere, that it's the triumph of the power of new kinds of organizations to allow people to have a stake in their political life. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, drop me an email, tweet about us, do all those things that you do when you like a podcast. Thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. I will be back tomorrow. Thanks very much for listening.